0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 13. Uh, We're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. For those of you who may be new or unfamiliar to FAC, my name is Mike Kaczorowski. I'm the lead pastor here. It's it's a joy to be back with you. I've uh, been absent from the pulpit for the last two Sundays. Um, My family and I were able to refresh and rejuvenate, and it's good to be back. It's a joy uh, to be back. And so I, I appreciate your patience. Uh, upon my return. And I also appreciate your patience as um, we here at FAC try and figure out this pandemic. Uh, if any of you have figured it out, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, I'm assured that nobody has at this point. And um, I want to assure you that uh, we're not just sitting on our hands here at FAC. We are looking at a phased reopening of sorts, a phased restart and relaunch of ministries. And uh, there are ministries that are relaunching. And so we would encourage you, if you were a part of any ministries here other than just Sunday morning service, uh, reach out to the ministry leaders and they would be happy to share with you about just what's coming up in those ministries. I know that we've got a couple of adult Bible school uh, Bible Sunday morning studies uh, that you to meet that we're hoping to relaunch here in the middle of August, where the youth ministry is going to begin having campfires again here this month, I believe, and uh, even children's ministry. We're trying to figure out how we can minister to our kids and our parents through this time, and we're hoping within the next couple of months that we'll be able to make progress on that. And so uh, bear with us and pray with us, please, as we uh, continue to consider what ministry looks like uh, under the circumstances of a pandemic. This is certainly not fun, uh, but we believe that God's hand is in it and uh, directing our path. And so please uh, join us uh, in that. Um, Last fall, uh, I set out to preach through Acts uh, starting in the new year in 2020. And um, I sat down, I think it was November, and just charted our course. I divided the passages into uh, what we would go through each Sunday. And when I came to Acts 13, originally I had written down that we would cover the first 12 verses in one sitting in Acts 13. And then as I began to study and look at the passage and began to write, I determined that we really were only going to get through the first four verses and then I finished the sermon and I considered the time and uh, how long the sermon was going to end up. And I decided for your sake and to be courteous that we were only going to get through the first two verses. Uh, and so we better get into it because before you know it, we might only get to one verse when all is said and done. And I share this with you not to discourage you, but quite the opposite. I want you to know and see the deep riches that can be found in Scripture, even if just two verses... Um, the further we dig, the richer the treasure. And uh, there there is too much treasure in these first several verses of Acts 13 that I don't want to just gloss over it. And so join me in Acts 13. I'll read verses 1 through 2 and pray, and then we'll begin. It says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manny, and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the promises within it, the direction within it, the light within it. In our time today, by the power of your Spirit, would we learn more of who you are? And would we know your very heart? Give us the grace to know and understand and retain your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several months ago, uh, I had a very unsettling dream that had to seem to stick with me for some time. Typically, my dreams don't have that much of an effect on me after I wake up, but, but this was one that just sort of lingered and uh, rattled me for several days. In my dream, I was laying in a bed on a boat, in the cabin of a, of a boat, when all of a sudden I started feeling some significant waves coming up against the, the boat. And when I came up from the cabin, I noticed that there was a storm coming on. Now the storm hadn't hit yet, but you knew it was coming on because it was completely overcast. There was no sun and these waves were huge, crashing up against the boat and throwing it up and down uh, as if it was uh, a toy. And as I looked around this very large uh, boat, there was nobody to be seen except for the captain at the helm uh, of the ship. And this is where the dream grew the most unsettling for me uh, and unnerving. I I went to talk to the captain and I asked him, what what are you, what are you doing? What on earth is going on? Where, Where are you taking me? And he didn't respond to me. He didn't make a single peep, just silence, almost as if He didn't even acknowledge my existence as I tried to gain his attention and receive direction. Perhaps there have been times in your life where it feels much like my dream that I had several months ago. As if God is the captain and you're just left to wonder, God, where on earth are you taking me? What on earth would you have for me in this life? And as you call out to God and ask for direction, all you hear is unsettling silence. Now, it's easy to take such experiences in your life and grow disgruntled towards God for not providing direction. However, before we let our hearts grow hardened, I want us to consider this question. Is my heart in a position or in a posture to hear from God? Is my heart in a position or in a posture to hear from God? Is my heart prepared and ready to hear God? Perhaps we don't hear God, not because he isn't talking, but because our hearts aren't in a position to listen. And so be open to the possibility that maybe the lack of direction in my life isn't on God, but instead on me and what I'm doing, or perhaps not doing for that matter. In the first two verses of Acts 13, we are introduced to some men in the church of Antioch, and we actually see them hear from God. But before they hear from God, we see the necessary steps that they took to hear from God, to hear specifically from the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to walk through these first two verses uh, together and see what steps, what were they doing to prepare themselves to hear from God Almighty, to hear direction. In verse 1, we read that there were prophets and teachers, in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers. And what's important to note in this first verse is that these men, these prophets and teachers, they're leaders in the church in Antioch. They're leaders of the church. They are the ones communicating the word and the will of God to the congregation. Teachers and prophets, they actually, they're two separate roles uh, that serve distinct purposes, and they would be considered positions of leadership. Teachers, for instance, would actually instruct the church on the Old Testament scriptures and on the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they would apply them to the believers at the time. Essentially, the role of the teacher was designed to tell the believer, how in this context do, do I live? How, how, what is the Christian conduct of our life according to God's teaching, according to Jesus' teaching? How should I live? prophets, while similar, actually focused more on the future of the church, the future of the believer. And um, yes, there were moments where they would be able to predict the future, but that wasn't primarily the prophet's role. A lot of people may confuse that. They think the prophet just predicted the future. That's not the case. The prophet very much just served as a mediator between God and the people, and, and God would impress on the prophet the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As the spirit would move, the prophet would communicate to the church such direction. The prophet would take the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching and use that as the foundation and say, in light of what uh, the foundational truth of God's word and the movement of the spirit, this is where you would have us go as a church. Both are extremely important roles and play a vital part in the church. And both are leadership roles. Once again, this passage is happening in the context of a leadership meeting. This is a leadership gathering, and I'm assuming that the list of men that followed are the prophets and the teachers that are mentioned. These men that we see here that are named are the leaders of the church in Antioch. And at risk of beating a dead horse, I want to point out just the ethnic and the cultural diversity among these leaders. They very much represent the cosmopolitan nature of the the city of Antioch that we've spoken about in weeks past. Take a look at these names. We know from earlier passages that Barnabas is Jewish, but he's originally from Cyprus, which is an island nation in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, We don't know about anything about Simeon here other than that he is called uh, Niger, which actually means black. And so many commentators assume that Simeon had black skin, which point would point to a different geographical location in that time. Lucius is listed as from Cyrene, which is where modern day Libya is. And so that puts Lucius in North Africa. And then Mannion is described as being brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Herod, uh, this, this Herod was the ruler of Galilee during Jesus' time, during his ministry. And um, this would mean that Mannion was, was brought up or would have been at least an acquaintance with, with Herod. Manian was probably well-to-do. He was probably wealthy. There's a very good chance that there was some royalty in his family line, but we find him here leading this church in Antioch. And finally, we have Saul, who is, of course, from Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. There's a remarkable diversity of leadership here in the church in Antioch. And I think Luke purposefully lists their names and their descriptions so that we might benefit. So that we may see the beauty and the value of diversity within Christian leadership and what we should strive for because it represents the greater kingdom of God and how diverse it is. And yes, this is the standard by which we should strive for, but not only based on their diversity but also based on their practice in leadership. Based on their practice in leadership. Verse 2 allows us to see their leadership in motion, in practice. Verse 2 allows us to be a fly on the wall during one of their leadership gatherings. They're meeting together in this verse. And in this meeting, the leaders hear word from the Holy Spirit. They hear guidance from the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we'll take a closer look at what the Holy Spirit tells them and communicates to them. But this week, I'd like to focus on their activity before they heard the Spirit. I want to draw your attention in verse 2 to what these leaders are doing. In what context do they hear the Holy Spirit? Verse 2 says that they heard the Holy Spirit while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It's significant that this call from the Holy Spirit takes place during a time of spiritual focus and dedication on God. And so let's take a closer look. Let's look more specifically at what they're doing. First, it says they were worshiping the Lord. Now this word worship is odd because it's not what you may think. For some reason in our context and culture, we equate worship with singing. It's become synonymous in our context, but this doesn't mean that they were singing songs. These, these words are not interchangeable because they're two different things. Singing can be a form of worship, but worship is so much more than singing right it's broader it's larger we we worship god yes when we sing but we also worship him when we serve we worship him when we give we worship him when we hear god's word preached we worship him with our entire lives every single bit of our life can be an act of worship to god we are living sacrifices right And so the word for worship here uh, in the text literally means ministering, ministering. It's a word used for doing public service or public worship for God. Uh, In the Greek version of the Old Testament, right? So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and then they translated it into Greek. And in Greek, they used this word worship in the Old Testament exclusively for the service that the priests conducted in the temple. Now, in the New Testament context, ministering really took two main forms. For the, in the Old Testament, it was purely based on sacrifice, the priests sacrificing. That's how they worshiped. That's how they ministered. It changed in the New Testament because Jesus' sacrifice covered everything. So in the New Testament, when it talks about these men worshiping, it's one of two things. It's either preaching or it's praying. And because this word in this verse is coupled with fasting... And because later on, if you were to peek in verse 3, it says after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. There's a good chance that this word for worship right here in verse 2 means that they were serving, ministering by praying. This is a prayer time. This is a prayer gathering, a prayer meeting. And we see that prayer is a service we do for Christ. In Scripture, in the Bible, prayer is work. This is why Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish minister from the 1700s, uh, he said, prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. And so this shows us the priority of prayer. This shows us how prayer should take center stage in decision-making and discernment specifically in God's purposes, in his mission. Prayer and mission go hand in hand. Prayer and mission go hand in hand. Take a look at John 15, 16. This is what John writes, but what Jesus said. He said, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. I want you to consider the logic of this verse. Jesus says, I have chosen you. I have pulled you out. I have chosen you. I've taken you out of the kingdom of darkness where you once lived and I've pulled you out and I've put you into the kingdom of light and I have put you there for mission to go and bear fruit so that you can pray to my father and he will give you the things necessary to advance my kingdom. The logic of this verse says that Jesus gives mission so that God the father has prayers to answer. Prayer is given to us in the context of mission. It's very purpose in existing, is to advance God's kingdom. Unfortunately, though, we've turned prayer into something that it isn't. I know how these prayers typically go. I know that you pray hard to pass that exam. I know that you prayed hard for your team to win the championship. I know that you prayed real hard for that girl to miraculously like you and say yes to a date. I don't want you to feel bad because I've actually prayed for all three of those things in my lifetime. And God only gave me two of of the three at the time. And I'll leave it to your imaginations of which one he didn't grant me. Being from Cleveland, though, you could probably guess which one it is. But let me challenge you for a moment. If you were to keep a prayer journal, if we were to record all the prayers that you've prayed throughout this week, how many of those are missional? How many of those were prayed to advance the kingdom? And how many were prayed to advance my personal interests? we've turned prayer into something that it isn't. And I want to read an excerpt for you from uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper is a pastor up in Minnesota, and this excerpt shares an excellent illustration of what we've turned prayer into. And um, I can't put it any better than he has. And so uh, listen to what he has to say on the matter. Uh, Piper writes, The number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission to go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And so to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning. Just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom. In our houses, and cabin, and boats, and cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the dead. Church, we are in a war. And we have been commanded by God Almighty to ambush the enemy. And we have every bit of advice and guidance at our disposal that we need to accomplish this through the work and service of prayer. But our prayers will not be fueled missionally until we come to realize that this is wartime. This is what the church in Antioch is doing. They are on their knees in the midst of a war. They knew they were in war and they knew they needed guidance from God. They were praying. It's not the only thing that we read that they were doing. What else are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. They're praying, but they are also fasting. Now, what is fasting? There may be a lot of confusion about uh, around this discipline. You'll see this practice through scripture and not Many people really understand its purpose. So it's significant that we touch base on this and understand what it is. What is someone doing when they fast? Well, in the most basic sense, to fast is to abstain from something, typically from food. It doesn't have to be food, but when you read about fasting in Scripture, to my knowledge, when you see someone fasting in the Word, they are fasting from food. This is actually where we even get the word breakfast. Breakfast is to break the fast. You've been fasting whether you wanted to or not overnight. And when you eat, you are breaking your fast breakfast. But why on earth should we as believers fast? Now, it's no surprise that I like food, like a lot In the summer's graduation season is excellent because as students invite me, they typically provide a meal and I end up eating three when I'm there. It's a gift from God, right? Food for us to enjoy. In Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve, behold, I have given you plant yielding seed that is on the the, the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God is saying, I'm giving you a gift, and it's going to be to eat. I'm giving you the gift of food. And this is part of God's perfect plan for us, that we would eat, that we would feast. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a great feast. So why in the meantime, until that day, should we fast? Like many things in Scripture This is a physical representation of a greater spiritual reality. It's a symbolic discipline. Because you see, as part of creation, we are actually designed to feast on God. We are designed to find our enjoyment, to find our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our fill in God. But unfortunately, sometimes we enjoy God's gifts so much that they become a deadly substitute for him. You see, we're always called to put away sin. We're always called to put away evil, to put away the bad. But sometimes we're also called to put away the good. Sometimes we need to forfeit the good gifts of God so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. As one writer puts it, once we taste and see that the Lord is good, the things of the world will no longer appeal to us in the same way. And this is a healthy spiritual posture to take. To, to say, Lord, I desire you more than anything in this world, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that I desire you by putting away your gifts. The problem, though, is that not all of us can say that because we're stuffing ourselves with things of the world. Here's another Piper quote for you from his book, A Hunger for God. This is what he writes. If you don't feel, a, feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. I want you to think about a time when you were really full from eating too much. Think about the the most full, the fullest you've ever been. I can say with confidence that the fullest I have ever been occurred actually in Chicago three years ago on a youth group trip. We took our students out for uh, deep dish pizza, Chicago style. And of course, an eating contest ensued. And I was not about to let some students show me up. And so I gorged myself on way more slices of deep dish pizza than I care to admit. I was so full in that moment that you could have offered me a plate of the most flavorful food in the world. The the most delightful, savory, and satisfying cuisine in the world. And I wouldn't be able to enjoy it, let alone even take a bite out of it. Because how full I was from pizza. In the same way, when we gorge ourselves on the gifts of this world, the blessings in this life, It leaves no room to enjoy the savory presence of God and his glory. And so fasting is a discipline that denies something that I want, something that I desire, something that I love. It's letting go of something that I love so that I may cling to my creator. And something fascinating happens when we cling to our creator. The rest of the world loses its grip on us. And so you can see how this discipline of fasting would prepare the heart to hear the Holy Spirit. As we abandon the things that distract us, we are prepared to hear. If you've ever painted bare walls before, you know uh, the important crucial step to apply primer to the walls first. Why do we prime walls or a canvas before we paint? Because it prepares the surface to be painted on. Painting comes easier, comes more natural when you've primed appropriately. And in the same way, hearing the Holy Spirit comes easier, comes more natural when we've primed our heart and soul appropriately, when we're prepared to hear. How did the leaders in the church of Antioch prime their hearts, prepare their souls through prayer and through fasting? There is so much weight in verse 2 when Luke writes, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, they didn't even get the chance to finish. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. This is no coincidence. As one is distracted by the shallowness of this world, it's easy to see only what's in front of our own two eyes. When our hearts aren't focused and when our hearts aren't primed, it's so easy to go to God and say, God, what are you doing? I can't hear you. I have no direction for my life. I have no direction for my my family. God, it feels like you're sleeping on the job. Where are you? But we have to preach the whole counsel of Scripture to ourselves, right? And and we know from Psalm 121 that, that God doesn't sleep. Look at the first four verses. He doesn't lay dormant. The psalmist writes, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The whole premise and promise of this psalm is that we can go to God, we have access to God through the work of Christ, the powerful creator of all things, because He does not sleep. Because he doesn't need to take days off. He doesn't need to take days off. He he is never off the clock. He does not sleep. The Holy Spirit is not asleep. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He's always moving. He's always working. He's always communicating. And so when we don't hear the Spirit, perhaps it's more so not because he isn't speaking, but rather because we aren't listening. And perhaps we aren't listening because we are caught up with the stuff of this world. I am convinced that the leaders of the Antioch church heard the spirit loud and clear because the condition of their hearts were set humbly before God. They were prepared to hear from God. Church leaders and congregants, for that matter, who do not pray and do not fast are in no condition to make significant spiritual decisions. And so as we look into the future and see what's next for FAC, I would ask you as a church to join me in prayer and fasting as we seek guidance. We'll get into this next week, but I do believe that God is honing in on what he would have for us here at FAC as a local church. I believe that he is giving us a clearer picture. However, I want to ensure that we're hearing from God and nobody else. So would you join me in that endeavor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you for your goodness to us. And I would pray, Father, that you would give us direction here at FAC. Lord, as we look to the future and even look to what does ministry look post-pandemic, Father, would you speak and would we hear you loud and clear, just as these leaders in the Church of Antioch did. We thank you that we have access to you because of what Christ did, his finished work on the cross. And in your holy name, I pray. Amen.